Exodus chapter 14, we are going to finish this chapter today. We've done half of it. We're going to be in Exodus chapter 14. I'm going to read to you verses 15 and 16, and then we're going to read from verse 21 to the end of the chapter. I'm going to read verses 15 and 16 for context here. Exodus chapter 14, verse 15, And the Lord said to Moses, Why do you cry to me? Tell the children of Israel to go forward, but lift up your rod and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it, and the children of Israel shall go on dry ground through the midst of the sea. Verse 21, Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord caused the sea to go back by a strong east wind all that night and made the sea into dry land, and the waters were divided. So the children of Israel went into the midst of the sea on the dry ground, and the waters were a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. And the Egyptians pursued and went after them into the midst of the sea, all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen, Now it came to pass in the morning watch that the Lord looked down upon the army of the Egyptians through the pillar of fire and the cloud, and he troubled the army of the Egyptians. And he took off their chariot wheels so that they drove them with difficulty. And the Egyptians said, Let us flee from the face of Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the sea, that the waters may come back upon the Egyptians, on their chariots and on their horsemen. And Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and when the morning appeared, the sea returned to its full depth, while the Egyptians were fleeing into it. So the Lord overthrew the Egyptians in the midst of the sea. And then the waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen and all the army of Pharaoh that came into the sea after them. Not so much as one of them remained. But the children of Israel had walked on dry land in the midst of the sea, and the waters were a wall to them on their right hand and on their left So the Lord saved Israel that day out of the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Thus Israel saw the great work which the Lord had done in Egypt. So the people feared the Lord and believed the Lord and his servant Moses. Father, we ask that you would this morning, by the power of your Holy Spirit, Lord, cause your word, cause your holy scripture, cause your gospel to be illuminated to us. Lord, that it would transform us and conform us to the very image of the Son of God. We ask that you would do this for your glory, that your church would be salt and light and a witness to you in this earth. In Jesus' name, amen. So God commanded Moses... And he commanded Israel to trust and to obey. He told Moses, he said, why are you crying to me? Lift up your rod, stretch out your hand over the sea, and it will be divided. Tell the children of Israel to go forward. Now remember where they are. God brought them to the most 
unstrategic place that they could possibly be to fight a battle. They had no place to go to their right. They had no place to go to their left. And behind them was the Red Sea, and in front of them was the entire army of Egypt. But God brought them to this place of seeming impossibility and certain defeat so that God could demonstrate his power on their behalf. So I want to encourage you today, if you find yourself in a situation that seems like it is impossible and defeat for all practical purposes seems inevitable, don't lose hope because you are not the first person that's ever found themselves in that place. In fact, if you read the scripture, you'll see that all throughout God's word, God brings his people to places such as this and then demonstrates his power for their deliverance. God commanded, he commanded Moses and he commanded Israel to trust and to obey. God commands the vessel for his plan for his purpose and for his glory. Moses was simply the vessel of God. The children of Israel were the vessels of God that God was working through to manifest his power and his glory. We are the vessels that God is working through today to manifest his power and his glory. And God commanded Moses and the children of Israel, and so God is commanding us today. And sometimes God puts us in impossible situations so that we have no choice but to trust in him because we have no power within ourselves. There is no one outside of us that can help us. Sometimes the only person that can help us is God. In fact, if the truth be known, God is always, ultimately, the only one that can truly help us. So God commands the vessel for his plan, for his purpose, and for his glory. God commands our faith. We are called and we are commanded to trust God. Did you know that when Jesus was ascending, before he ascended, after his resurrection, it's recorded in all four Gospels and even in the book of Acts, what we call the Great Commission, where Jesus tells his disciples to go into all the nations and make disciples. In, in Mark's Gospel, he puts it this way, go and preach the Gospel to every creature. And that is a commandment. It's not a suggestion. Jesus didn't suggest, hey, if you guys have time, if you find it within your uh, comfort level, would you go and make disciples? It wasn't a suggestion. It's a commandment. And when we go as followers of Jesus and we proclaim the gospel and we preach the gospel, we make Christ known and we make known his salvation, what God is doing is God is declaring through us, his vessels, his ambassadors, the command to believe. God doesn't ask people to believe. God doesn't suggest that people believe. God commands that we believe. And if we do not trust him, we are violating his command. We are disobeying his command. 
So God commands our faith. He calls us and he commands us to trust him. Ephesians 2.8, Paul writes, By grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. That not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. Moses was commanded to lift up his rod and stretch out his hand over the sea and divide it in faith. He was commanded to do that. Israel was commanded to go forward in faith and cross through the sea on dry ground. We find in verse 26 that again, Moses was commanded to stretch out his hand and in faith command that the waters come back upon the army of the Egyptians. God commands our faith. We are commanded to trust in him. God also commands our obedience. To truly trust God is to obey him because faith without works is dead. This is what James writes in James 2.20. He says, faith without works is dead. It's not faith at all. We can't say we trust God, yet not live out that trust. So it would not have been faithful for Moses to say, well, I trust you, Lord, but I just don't believe you can divide this Red Sea. Or for the children of Israel to say, well, we trust you, God, but we're not going to dare step foot between those two walls of water because we don't know if those are going to come down on us or not. Faith demands action. God commands our faith, but he also commands our obedience. Moses obeyed God's command to stretch out his hand and to divide the waters. Israel obeyed God's command to go forward into the sea on dry ground with water as a wall on both sides of them. I can't even imagine what that must have been like. I can't imagine how terrible that must have been. They had no choice. They knew exactly what the Egyptians had in store for them. They had no choice but to move forward and cross through that Red Sea on dry ground with these walls of water on both sides of them. There is no special effect that Hollywood could ever muster that could accurately portray what that day must have been like. And it was an absolute act of faith and obedience for Israel to walk through that Red Sea. Obedience is not an option. It is what God commands for us. Our obedience falls short. You do realize that. Our obedience consistently falls short. But God has given us, through Jesus Christ, through faith in Jesus Christ, new hearts, new hearts to obey His will with the promise that His grace is sufficient. When Paul was crying out to God, it's recorded for us in 2 Corinthians, and he has the thorn in the flesh, and he says, God, please remove this thorn from my flesh. And Paul writes in his letter to the Corinthians, three times I prayed to the Lord. Three times I asked God to remove this thorn. And three times I was denied. And then the Lord speaks to Paul and says, Paul, your 
weakness is for my glory. He says, my strength is made perfect through your weakness. My grace is sufficient. We are weak vessels. Our obedience is far from perfect. It is extremely imperfect. We chronically fail. And we are not trusting. That's why our salvation is not based on our ability to obey God. Our salvation is not based on our ability to manage our sinfulness. Our salvation is based on what Christ has done. What has Christ done? Christ walked perfectly before his Father. Christ fulfilled perfectly the obedience that God demanded. And our salvation comes not from our ability to walk perfectly before God. Our salvation comes by trusting in the one, the only one, who was ever and who will ever walk perfectly before God. God commands, nevertheless, our obedience. And out of our imperfect obedience is our trust in Jesus. And in that is the sufficient grace of God, the all, ever, eternal, sufficient grace of God. God commands our faith. God commands our obedience. God commands our salvation. Psalm 3.8 and Psalm 62.1 both declare that salvation belongs to the Lord. In commanding our salvation, God confounds and conquers our enemies. There's the result of faithful obedience is victory. Had Israel not crossed through the Red Sea, they would not have experienced deliverance. They would have all died on the seashore at the hands of the Egyptians. But God made a way where there was no way. Our victory and our salvation is the result of Christ's faithful obedience and victory. God in Christ has fought for us and overcome our enemies. Remember what Benjamin said? God fights the bad guys and beats them. God did that through Jesus Christ. Through faith in Christ and his perfect obedience, God has saved us and God has given to us complete victory. You're not going to be victorious one day when you get to heaven. You're not going to finally find victory one day when you see Jesus face to face. You have victory right now. Yes, even in the midst of your trial and tribulation. Yes, even when things don't turn out the way you want them to, hoped for them to, and even prayed for them to. The outcome of your trial does not ultimately determine your victory because the outcome of our trial has already been determined. Whatever trial, whatever tribulation, whatever valley, whatever shadow, 
we pass through in this life has already been overcome. They will pass. Our trials, our tribulations will pass. The valley of shadow is just a place we walk through. But what God has prepared for us in Christ transcends. It is above our trials and our tribulations. So much so that Paul writes that these momentary and light afflictions are working for us a more eternal weight of glory. We don't deny the momentary and light affliction that seems crushingly heavy many times. We don't deny it. We don't pretend like it's not there. No, we acknowledge it. We give it to God. We run to God and we say, God, help me see this moment the way you see this moment. Help me know that this thing that seems to be crushing me now is momentary in light. And in fact, God, help me to see that the weight of glory that you are working through this is so much greater than what I feel right now. That's faith, church. That's not living in denial. That's not denying what the doctor says. That's not denying the reality of your situation. It's not denying that you've been wronged or that you've come up short somehow. It is looking to the one that has overcome all. It is looking to the one that is even Lord over the valley of shadow. It's looking to the one that is the Lord over your trial and your tribulation. And God will make a way where there seems to be no way. He has already done that through Jesus Christ. God commands our faith. God commands our obedience. God commands our salvation. God commands even our fear. I love what C.S. Lewis said, God is good, but he is not safe. We very often think of the fear of the Lord and the love of the Lord as two mutually exclusive things. The great work of God's salvation is a work of complete love, but it is also a work that is terrible and fearful. We've been so accustomed to thinking about the cross in terms of a little piece of jewelry we wear around our neck or a nice home decor we hang on our wall that we've lost the reality of the terrible, awesome thing that the cross truly is. The cross was the death of the Son of God. The cross was the murder of God's Son. And we cannot in our humanness begin to comprehend the horribleness of the cross. But the Bible presents it to us, even in graphic detail, what they did to Jesus. 
Yet through that horrible, terrible, awesome cross, God worked our salvation. And when we consider the sin that nailed Jesus to the cross, we should consider our own sin. For if God hated sin so much that he was willing to have his own son nailed to the cross to pay the penalty for our sin, it should inform us exactly how God feels about sin. I have three children. I have eight grandchildren on the ground and two in the air. Many of you I've known for many years and I love you. Some of you I just met today. And I can honestly say I would not offer up any one of you for the sins of a people that not only hated you, but hated me. Who were ungrateful, undeserving, who do not desire my love. See, that's who we were to God. We were not faithful. We were not deserving. We did not desire God's love when Jesus died for us. In fact, the Bible says we were just the opposite. We not only didn't desire it, we shunned it. We ran from it. There was nothing, not one little thing that was good in us that would merit Jesus dying for us, yet Jesus died. To fear the Lord is to know the Lord and to trust Him and to trust His salvation. The fear of the Lord gives us assurance of His love, but it gives us much, much more than that. How does the concept of a God I am to fear equate with a God who loves me and a God that I am to love? Well, let's look to the scripture for that answer. Just from the Proverbs, Proverbs 1-7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Proverbs 8-13, the fear of the Lord is to hate evil. Sin is evil. Christ hated sin so much that he offered up his own life to overcome it. Proverbs 9.10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It's the beginning of of the knowledge of the Holy One. 
Proverbs 14, 26, in the fear of the Lord is strong confidence and a refuge for his children. Proverbs 14, 27, the fear of the Lord is a fountain of life. Proverbs 15, 33, the fear of the Lord is the instruction of wisdom. Proverbs 16, 6, by the fear of the Lord, men depart from evil. Proverbs 22, 4, by humility and the fear of the Lord are riches, honor, and life. We are to be zealous for the fear of the Lord. Proverbs 23, 17 and 18. Do not let your heart envy sinners, but be zealous for the fear of the Lord all the day. For surely there is a hereafter, and your hope will not be cut off. Do you hear that promise, church? For surely there is a hereafter and your hope will not be cut off. God commands our fear, not for our harm, but for our good. That we would find a hope that will not and cannot fail. In verse 21 of this chapter, Moses stretches out his hand and the Lord causes the sea to go back. The language is very purposeful here. Look what it says, verse 21. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea and the Lord caused the sea to go back. God commands our faith. He commands our obedience. And in our obedience, it is the Lord that causes our seed to go back. It is the Lord that causes our mountains to be moved for our deliverance. God commands us to take action by faith, but he is the cause that brings about the effect of our faith. For those who love physics, remember that part in physics, for every cause there is an effect. There you go. I made a D in physics when I took it, just to let you know. Psalm 136.13 declares that God divided the Red Sea in his enduring mercy. Moses did not split the Red Sea. God did, but not apart from the obedient faith of his servant. God could have just split the sea wide open and said, There you go, Moses. There you go, children of Israel, just walk on through. But God didn't do that. God could have split the sea in an instant and caused the land to be dry. But if you read the scripture carefully, you see that Moses stretched out his hand. He lifted up his rod. He stretched out his hand. And the Bible says that God caused an east wind to blow all that night and it 
divided the waters and dried out the land. Now, I would like to know what kind of wind that was. I had a tornado hit my house February 21st and did substantial damage. I can't imagine what kind of wind it took to split a sea and to dry it out overnight. But that's what God did. Moses was simply the vessel God used to do his work. The children of Israel went in and walked on dry ground in the midst of the sea. And the Bible says the waters were a wall to them on both sides. The children of Israel walked on dry ground in the midst of the sea. 1,500 years later, Jesus was born. And the Bible records a night when Jesus didn't split the sea to walk across it, but he simply walked on top of the water in the midst of a storm. So we have accounts in the Bible where God split seas open and caused the land to be dry so that his people could walk through it. We have accounts recorded in the Bible where Jesus walked on top of the water and invited his disciples to come and Peter stepped out of the boat and walked on the water until he took his eyes off Jesus and looked around at the wind and the waves and he sunk. But Jesus reached out his hand and lifted him up. And just like most Jesus did with Moses and Israel, he can cause us to walk through or to walk over our obstacles by faith. But it will take faith. I want you to hear this. If you don't hear anything else I say today, I want you to hear this. Sin is the greatest obstacle we will ever face. It's greater than any ocean. It's higher and more rooted than any mountain. It's greater than any situation or circumstance or trial, no matter how fiery it is, or shadow, no matter how dark it may be. The greatest, most imposing obstacle you will ever face in your life is your sin. And we would sooner split the Red Sea in our own power than we can overcome even the smallest of our sins apart from the power of God, apart from the grace of God. If God does not save us, we will not be saved. Verse 31, the Bible records that Israel saw Thus Israel saw the great work which the Lord had done in Egypt. So the people feared the Lord and believed the Lord and his servant Moses. Israel saw the great work, so the people feared the Lord and the people believed the Lord. But you and I know that seeing is not always believing, right? Right? 
I mean, we're going to, as we work our way through the book of Exodus, we're going to see that right after this great and awesome work that God did of splitting open the Red Sea and destroying the Egyptian army, it's, it's going to be just three days later that Israel will find itself moaning and complaining and wondering why God didn't just leave them in Egypt. It's almost more than we can comprehend that you could witness something that great and yet three days later have that much doubt and unbelief. Yet here's, here's the reality. You and I do it all the time, don't we? You say, yeah, well, I've never seen anything like God splitting the Red Sea open. No, you've seen greater than that. You just don't know it. If our belief is based only on sight, our doubts can also be produced by what we see or what we do not see. In other words, the sight I rely on for my belief can be the very same sight that produces my doubt. Faith is a gift from God that must be applied, not to what we are able to see, but to those things not seen. Hebrews 11.1 1 says, Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. God has given us plenty to see all around us. His miracles, His invisible attributes are clearly seen. Every breath you're breathing right now is a miracle from God. Every ounce of blood your heart is pumping through your veins is a miracle from God. We have mothers expecting children, and those babies inside those wombs are miracles from God. From the very youngest walking around these concrete floors to the very oldest of us sitting in the pews, we are miracles of God. You want to see a miracle? Go look at a tree. You want to see a miracle? Go outside and close your eyes and just feel the breeze. God has not left us without evidence. But our faith cannot just be based on those things that we are able to see with our eyes. Our faith has got to be based on something much greater than that. Because everything we see with our eyes is going to pass one day. Jesus said, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. You and I cannot see the words that brought this creation into being, but we can see the creation that the words brought. And so we know the words are real. You can't see the words that brought you into being in your mother's womb, but yet here you are, and so we know the word is real. The secret weapon that we read about in the kids' story, in the children's story, is the same secret weapon that God has given to all of us. It's his word. And sometimes his word coincides with things we can see. But much of the time, his word speaks of those things that we cannot see with our physical eyes, but they are real and we must see them by faith. 
And so God commands our faith. He commands our obedience. He commands our salvation. He commands our fear. But in that, he has given us hope that will not disappoint. He has assured us of that in his word that he has given to us in the form of a Bible, in the form of all that is written around us in creation, but most importantly, through the word that lives in our heart, the Lord Jesus Christ, the living word, the word that was made flesh and dwelt among us, the word that ascended back to the Father and poured out the Spirit who now lives in those who will trust in Jesus for their salvation. We need to be like Israel. We need to see the sea before us and realize we have no hope unless God saves us. If we think we can save ourselves, if we think we can work this out ourselves, if we think that our good is going to outweigh our bad, if we think that God's not who he really has declared himself to be in his word and demonstrated himself to be through the Lord Jesus Christ, if we believe for one second that the God of the scripture, the God of this Bible is not the true and living God, we'll find out one day. But in that day we find out it will be too late. Trust him. Live a life that glorifies and honors him. Don't settle for lesser things. The lesser things of this world are pulling at us constantly. The lesser things of this world are distracting us at every turn. The lesser things of this world are pulling us to them because they seem so real, they seem so good, they seem so relevant for my life right now. But your life is not defined by right now. Your life is eternal. And your life is either in Jesus Christ or it is not. Israel came to a place of impossibility and God did the impossible. And Paul writes in his letter to the Corinthians that God has recorded all of these things for us because these things are examples to us. Because the same doubt and the same fear that Israel had on the shore of the Red Sea are the same fears and the same doubts that we all deal with every day because they are just as human as we are and we are just as human as they are and we are just as fallen as they were until we are redeemed by our Savior. Trust. Trust in the Lord. He alone is our salvation. Don't trust in everything you can see. Trust in the things that are greater 
trust in what you can see. Don't trust in what you feel. Trust in the things that have been revealed to us in his word that are greater than what we feel. Trust him. Trust him and live. Trust him and know your hope that is eternal. Amen. God commands us to trust him to walk forward by faith just like he did Israel. To know that he has already made a way where there was no way. He has split your sea. He has moved your mountain of sin through the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. He has blown the wind of his spirit into your life and made a way for you to cross over into the promise of his life in Jesus Christ. Do not take his salvation for granted. Do not forget his mighty work. Be zealous for the fear of the Lord, for in the fear of the Lord there is salvation. My prayer and my desire, and I believe God's desire for you, is to live your life in such a way that you have reason to rejoice and not to regret. That you would seek and learn contentment and shun complacency. We need to find our contentment in the Lord, but we should never become complacent. We should live our life to the fullest with reason to rejoice but don't live your life in a way that you're going to regret one day. God has made a way for us. Let's walk in it. Amen.